Welcome to Episode 6 of Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Professor of Humanities at Hult International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Last time we followed John Gay as he negotiated the filthy, crammed, dangerous streets of early 18th century London. Gay presented himself as a great insider, sharing his hard-earned knowledge of the city with his less savvy readers. And he felt a perverse pride that he was not one of the privileged few who could afford the comfort and security of a carriage. In this episode, I want to explore London again, about a hundred years later, with someone as cushioned from discomfort as anyone could be. Abu Hassan was certainly no insider. For him, every sight, sound, and smell of the metropolis was shockingly, thrillingly new. On Saturday, 25th of November, 1809, His Majesty's ship Formidable, a rather elderly ship of the line, arrived in Plymouth Harbor, having escorted an East India Company convoy through the dangerous waters of the Mediterranean and the Bay of Biscay. The Formidable was not only protecting merchant ships from French predators, she was also carrying Mirza Abul Hassan Khan, his eight servants, and his interpreter and minder, James Morier. Abul Hassan, the first diplomatic envoy from Iran to the United Kingdom, was born in 1776 in Shiraz, then the capital of Iran, into an important and wealthy family. His uncle had been a previous Shah's chief minister. But political prominence brought vulnerability, and in 1800, the Iranian court was in turmoil. Many of Abu Hassan's family were killed or imprisoned, and he went into impoverished exile. He spent the next few years in the service of the Nizam of Hyderabad, one of the most important Indian princes. There he encountered, and was apparently intrigued by, several East India Company officials. A new Shah, Fat Ali, brought Abu Hassan home in 1806, but almost immediately sent him on his unprecedented mission to London. The envoy was a sophisticated, cultured, rather dandified, spectacularly bearded man. Abu Hassan wrote poetry, had only one wife, and was a devout but open-minded Muslim. Having just returned from exile, he was deeply and understandably anxious about his position at court and undertook his new diplomatic task reluctantly. But he had a great intellectual interest in other cultures, particularly in the English, and lucky for us, he kept a diary, which he called the Book of Wonders. It has been lovingly translated and annotated by Margaret Morris Cloak, to whom I am enormously grateful. Let me try to summarize Abu Hassan's complicated and eventually futile mission. Until the end of the 18th century, contact between Iran and Great Britain had been limited, and relations had been managed entirely through the East India Company. It had a trade monopoly, a resident, and premises in the port of Boucher, but there was no permanent British presence in the capital. As the company moved into the Punjab, its relations with the equally expansionist Zaman Shah of Afghanistan became trickier. So Iran, Afghanistan's western neighbor, became more strategically interesting. And when Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1798, 
the possibility that he would move further east, trying to reestablish a French presence in India, was a significant concern not just to the EIC, but also to the British government. The Shah of Iran also had difficulties on his borders, particularly to the north. There, the Russians were threatening the Caucasian provinces of his empire, so the EIC and Iran negotiated an arrangement to facilitate assistance by Iran if the Afghans invaded India, and by the British if the Russians invaded the Caucasus. But in 1807, when the Russians did indeed move south, the EIC did nothing. So naturally enough, the Shah turned to the French for help. The French almost immediately violated the resulting treaty by allying with the Russians, and the Shah, no doubt as baffled as I am by the vagaries of European diplomacy, resumed negotiations with the British. A preliminary treaty was negotiated in Tehran, and Abul Hassan was sent to London to finalize the arrangements. To me, the deal looks like a good one for the Shah. He abrogated his useless pact with the French and promised not to allow passage of a foreign force through his territory to India. In return, he received a promise from the British government, not just the East India Company, of diplomatic, financial, and even military support against the Russians. Of course, when Napoleon marched on Moscow in 1812 and Russia became once again a British ally, this treaty became a dead letter. But as HMS Formidable dropped anchor, the next double cross by perfidious Europeans was still in the unknowable future. We left our hero newly arrived in Plymouth Harbor. And like you, I'm sure, he was eager to get ashore. In his diary, he expressed his impatience with characteristic hyperbole. From the anchorage, Plymouth, even in late November, looked like a paradise to rival the Garden of Eden. We saw a beautiful green field with trees to shame the palm groves of paradise. Sweet-singing birds warbled the psalms of David, and Christian melodies refreshed our souls. To his surprise and frustration, and frustration and surprise are the dominant emotions of the entire diary, he was trapped on board. The king, he said, has decreed that no one not even the king himself, may leave a ship for four days after arrival at an English port. Abu Hassan grasped the concept of quarantine, but his wording hints at a misunderstanding that became a serious impediment to diplomatic progress over the next few months. Abu Hassan was used to personal rule and absolute monarchy. He was slow to understand, let alone to accept, even the limited diffusion of power which characterized early 19th century British parliamentary and bureaucratic government. What happened next surprised him even more. The local military authority sent a delegation to the ship with presents and formal messages of welcome. Then a crowd of women appeared. With bewitching guile and seductive glances, they captured the hearts of the sailors. Each one chose a woman and carried her off to his quarters. Amazed by the scene, I asked Captain Feyerman to explain what was happening. He said it was simply a matter of prudent foresight. If these harlots were not allowed to relieve the crew of their money, he might be faced with a severe shortage of labor for the next voyage. Surprisingly, no one who came on board to call on us was allowed to disembark before the four days had passed. 
I find Captain Fairman's pragmatism interesting. This was a Royal Navy vessel in wartime. Discipline seems remarkably relaxed. Abu Hassan was also astonished to find that the lust for information was just as urgent as the lust for sex. Newspapers were sent to us. About a hundred thousand are printed and sold every day in England. How extraordinary that today's newspapers will have no value tomorrow, except as toilet paper. Every day a new paper is required. This marvel moved Abu Hassan to poetry, as new discoveries often did. His minder, James Morier, translated his epigram from Persian. Let tomorrow bring what may, a new news comes with each new day. When Abu Hassan at last made it to dry land, he made yet another surprising discovery. He was himself a tourist attraction. There was not a moment when there were less than 2,000 men and women in the house. Maybe he exaggerates slightly. Curious to look upon the visage and beard of a native of Iran. He was a tourist as well, of course. The next day he was taken to Plymouth Dockyard, where he encountered the scale and systematic organization of factories for the first time. And the day after, beginning his journey to London, he experienced stagecoaches and turnpike roads. The road surface, he says, is smoother than the breast of a beautiful woman. Abul Hassan was amazed to make the trip, 70 Iranian farsakhs in two days. But in other respects, Britain seemed exasperatingly slow. He was eager to present his credentials to the king and to begin substantive negotiations and was dismayed to hear that the ambassador from Istanbul has been waiting for three months now. But his loss is our gain, since he was shown the sights of London and was otherwise entertained while he waited, and every wonder went into the book. Some of the phenomena which surprised him are themselves surprising. Every man, he remarked, whether of high or low estate, wears a watch in his waistcoat pocket, and everything he does, eating or drinking or keeping appointments, is regulated by time. Factories and bakeries and livery stables all have fixed hours of work, which are strictly adhered to, and each one has a large clock fixed to the wall, which strikes the hours. He was puzzled by pets. I was amazed to learn that some masters take their dogs to market with them. They hang their purchases around the dogs' necks and send them off home. The dogs obediently deliver the shopping to the mistress of the house. In this country, dogs are bought and sold at very high prices. Andy was particularly unimpressed by asparagus. One of the English servants seemed surprised when I refused it. He said that in England, it is a very expensive delicacy. I told him that, expensive or not, in Iran, we do not eat the plants that grow wild in the fields for animals. Abu Hassan was much less judgmental about prostitution than about asparagus. When one of his servants was caught in a brothel, he had the offender's head shaved. But he went on, there are some 30,000 prostitutes in London, but many of them you would not recognize as such. They dress beautifully, they have nice houses, they keep carriages and horses and servants. Nowhere did he express moral disapproval of the trade. His servant's offense was not the purchase of sex, 
it was being a diplomatic embarrassment. Abu Hassan was taken to the British Museum, where the Elgin marbles made little impact. I would not give five commands for the lot of them, he said. St. Paul's, where he climbed the dome, and the tower, where the menagerie apparently included black and white lions. He went to Vauxhall Gardens, Astley Circus, the opera, and the theater. He saw Kemble playing Lear and Joseph Grimaldi clowning in a single performance at Drury Lane. He visited glass and gun and textile factories. On his trip to the arsenal, he had his first encounter with steam-powered mechanization. After cooling, The cannons are lifted from the molds by a six-horsepower crane. A steam-powered metal drill is used to bore the cannon mouths and to smooth the barrels. There were ten men working one of these machines. Without steam, the work would require a hundred. The machines and tools in this workshop were invented only two years ago. He was very aware that the war was driving technological innovation and social transformation. He was also very aware of the financial cost, though the concept of public debt was strange to him. Because of the high cost of armaments, he says, and machinery, the government is usually in debt and forced to borrow from the public. Abu Hassan was sensitive to the human cost of war as well. His response to the Chelsea Hospital is touching. I do not know if the king is a religious man, but God must be pleased with him for building this house, and his soldiers must be all the more loyal and willing to risk their lives in battle if they can look forward to a comfortable old age in the Chelsea Hospital. My favorite of his excursions was to the Bank of England, where he encountered paper money for the first time. A most extraordinary thing is the fact that they print thin pieces of paper, each one of which is given a particular value, from one toman to one thousand tomans. These printed papers are called notes, and they are just as valuable as gold. Some two hundred clerks work from morning till night making these notes, which are printed with certain marks which make it extremely difficult to forge them. I found the bank, with its vast organization of clerks, soldiers, and laborers, more impressive than the court of a powerful sultan. In April of 1810, life in London was severely disrupted by violent protests against the arrest of the radical MP Sir Francis Burdett for libeling the House of Commons. Abu Hassan was intrigued at the restrained government response. In Iran, he says, 2,000 or more people would have been executed by now. But his conclusion was interestingly ambiguous. I am recording these facts to demonstrate the freedom and benevolence enjoyed by the citizens of London, because government is concerned that no innocent person should be molested. No one is arrested until his crime has been proven. Abu Hassan knew that such liberal sympathies would not be welcome at home, even if he was a bit naive about the principled restraint of the British government. Abu Hassan was a celebrity throughout his eight months in London. He was a staple of newspaper gossip columns. He was guest of honor at countless dinners. Beachy and Lawrence painted his portrait. He became the first known Iranian Freemason. Women he had never met flirtatiously asked to be taught Persian and even proposed marriage to him. In a clean-shaven age, 
his beard was particularly admired. At a fancy dress party, he encountered a man dressed as himself, with a false beard made from the hair of a cat or a goat. The next day he received, perhaps as an apology for this insult or to avoid a diplomatic incident, a present from the Prince of Wales, a comb for my beard set with diamond chips. Wined, dined, and lionized though he was, Abu Hassan was also deeply homesick. London's smoky air and damp climate made him ill. He missed his family and was anxious about his political position. After much delay, the terms of the treaty were agreed and he was able to return home. His travails were not yet complete, however. His ship was blown off course and, quite by accident, he and his servants became the first Iranians ever to visit South America. The treaty he helped to negotiate did not last, but despite his worries, his career did not suffer. He received an annuity of 1,000 rupees from the East India Company until his death in 1845 and served as Iranian foreign minister for no less than 18 years. So much about Abu Hassan's mission and diary intrigues me but I will limit myself to three comments. First, in his negotiations, he was completely on his own. Letters from Tehran took at least three months to arrive, if they arrived at all. In 1810, diplomatic envoys were very powerful people, but they were also completely ignorant of events at home. The telegraph revolutionized international relations. Second, in his observations of English life, he was astonishingly open-minded. He did not have a colonial mindset equating European practices with civilization, nor did he assume that his own cultural practices or even his own religious beliefs were best. For example, he welcomed the presence of women in public as a great benefit to both sexes and enormously valued their friendship. Third, Londoners were at least as curious about him as he was about them. But, I think, they were more limited by their own preconceptions. Sir Walter Scott's comment is typical and revealing. He found, In the manners of Mirza all the address and dexterity of a courtier, with some points which seem to indicate a deeper degree of reflection than we are accustomed to connect with the idea of a Muslim. Maybe if Scott could have escaped his own sense of cultural superiority for a moment, he and London could have learned more from Abu Hassan. That's enough for now. To find out about one of Abu Hassan's strangest, saddest encounters, become a Patreon and follow us down Alleyway 3. Over the next few months, we will look at some examples of London's public art. I hope you will join us then. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. My producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.